experiences. And um, yeah, I don't have any dad jokes this morning, so let's get into it. Um, Galatians chapter 3, if uh, you got your Bibles there, I'll get you to open up. Uh, to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be continuing through our series this morning. Uh, We're going to be reading from verse 19 down to verse 26. Um, I've accidentally put to verse 25 there, so you're going to miss the very best bit in verse 26. Um, uh, But let's, let's read together and let's jump into it. So it says here, Paul, continuing his, uh, continuing his letter here to the Galatians, he says, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. You guys missed that last bit on the screen. That's why you should bring your own Bibles. Um, I'm going to start intentionally just skipping verses, you know, intentionally just skipping verses and see if any of you notice. Um, So, so uh, here we are. Um, Last week, last week we were talking about um, the, the, the God's promise uh, the curse of the law, and Paul finishes that little section we were talking about last week. He says, you know, is, is the, the law contrary to, to the promise of Abraham? Does it nullify this promise that has already been given through Abraham? He's certainly not. Um, it, it, uh, and then we ask ourselves the question, because it naturally raises itself from the text. Well, if salvation, if justification, if all these good things that God has promised to us were coming through faith and not through uh, observance of the practice of the law, well then, why was the law given? Why was the law given? That's the question that naturally arises out of the text this morning, and we're going to be hopefully answering that probably to an unsatisfactory standard, but give you some idea about why the law was given, at least why Paul uh, argues here that the law was given. So, so already, just to put this in context, Paul has been arguing uh, not with the Galatians, but with the Judaizers arguing to the Galatians that they don't need to become circumcised. They don't need to become Torah observers in order to be justified before God. They don't need, they don't need to become culturally Jewish in order to receive salvation and to uh, be uh, part of God's family and to be sons and daughters of God. And he's argued so far that, that it's, it's actually hasn't not been their experience that that was true. They'd received the Spirit through faith. And then it was, it was the Judaizers who came later and tried to add law on top of that. Uh, Paul then also brings the law to bear itself, showing them that actually the law itself brings a curse. It brings a curse uh, to anybody who tries to uh, fulfill the law in their own strength and, and all this sort of stuff. The law itself brings a curse. And that even the law, uh, and that, sorry, and that salvation was always by faith as it was promised to Abraham. So this morning I want to talk a bit about the law. 
um, because it's an, it's an important question to ask even in our day. Because let, let's be honest, when, when you first become a Christian, now I'm, I'm assuming um, for when people become a Christian, I'm saying like as you didn't kind of grow up in church and maybe have good Bible teaching and all these sorts of things. When you first become a Christian, it may be confusing to you why you start reading the book like when it's almost done. You know, like the Bible is like the, one of those books that as a Christian, when you go, okay, well, where should I start reading the Bible? You don't tell people start at Genesis 1 because they may love Genesis 1, 2, 3. They may love the whole book of Genesis, but by the time they get to Exodus, it's like, okay, Leviticus, they're like, well, I don't, I, I'm, oh, I'm, I don't know. Like, is it, and then normally people quit. They're like, I, I, thought, this, <laughs> I thought this was going to be easy. You know, they should have gotten a proofreader because this is very confusing. This is very, very difficult for, for us to understand. I mean, there's lots of good stuff in there. There's lots of very confusing things in there. But the Bible is one of those books that you, you just don't read from the start. You start reading the back third first. You start with the Gospels. You usually tell someone, you know, go read the Gospel of Mark or go read the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, start there um, uh, if you want to begin studying the Bible. And so... But then that does raise the question, well, what do we do with the back, the, the front half of the book? And a lot of people, a lot of people kind of just acknowledge that it's important somehow, uh, that it's part of our Bibles, and it should be there for some reason. Uh, but mostly, it's just confusing, um, and it's not really relevant to us today. Um, and we can probably, you know, and there's even some portions of the church who, who are... Uh, saying that perhaps we should just jettison the Old Testament from our scriptures and really just focus on the New Testament. And, and to be honest with you, I, I kind of, I, I'm not saying that we should. Thank you. I'm not saying that we should, but I, I feel like I kind of understand the grievance that some people might have with the Old Testament because it can be confusing and and difficult for us to understand how it actually relates. So we're going to talk about the law because it is important. It was an important part of the redemptive history of God's people. And it can still be a useful and helpful part of your walk with Jesus today. But remembering at the outset before you, know, you guys get out your stones, right? we are not saved by keeping the law. All right? We are saved by Jesus alone through faith alone. And we're not saved by Torah observance. So Paul, Paul here is answering this very natural objection that is raised from his argumentation. Why then was the law given? And Paul comes straight out the gate. And his answer is, it was given for the sake of transgressions. Or, or your translation might say, because of transgressions. It was because of the corruption of sin in the world that God gave the law. But he goes on to say that he gave it um, for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So it was because of the presence of corruption of sin in the world that God gave the law. But it was always a temporary measure until the seed, that is Jesus, would come. You see, you've got to understand the story of Scripture for this to kind of really make sense. This portion here in Galatians is a prime example of why when, when, when you're in Bible college, you, you should understand that the Bible was written for you. It wasn't written to you, if you understand that distinction. 
right? The, you, the Bible, you are meant to be benefiting from the scriptures, right? But Paul doesn't have you in your modern mind and a modern context in mind when he's writing these things. He's assuming, he's assuming that you're coming to the table with a bunch of background history and knowledge and culture already that are going to make sense to him and his audience, but not necessarily to you. And the Lord wants to benefit you through this, but we need to add some context first. So let's, let's go back. We need to understand the story of scripture for this to make sense. You see, Sin was an invader in God's good world. Genesis 1 and 2 paints this beautiful picture of a good created order where God Almighty spoke and there was light. and He brought order and goodness out of the chaos and, <clears throat> and he structured things and he ordered things so that life could thrive and everything was blessed. And the first, the first humans, the Adam and Eve, were, were, were blessed in their union with one another. But Genesis 3, we get this this. Uh, serpent character entering the scene who deceives the humans into sinning and sin enters into the world and then by Genesis 4 we see sin being depicted as an animal crouching at the door waiting to consume Cain and the Lord says to Cain there's a sin it's crouching at the door and it wants to have you but you have to rule over it but for those of you familiar with the story of Genesis you know that Cain does not rule over that sinful temptation. In fact, he allows that sinful temptation to consume him. He ends up murdering his brother. And then from there, the story really devolves. It really devolves. He goes out and he makes a city. And his descendant, Lamech, uh, his descendant Lamech becomes a violent man. And by Genesis 6, even the sons of God are rebelling. And violence is filling the earth. And, and, and finally, at, <clears throat> we get to Genesis 11, where it seems like the whole of the earth has gathered to build this tower of Babylon, where they are going to make themselves great in the heavens by their own strength. And they are going to do everything in their own strength. And they are a complete and abject rebellion. And so the Lord scatters the people by confusing their language. And it's a dark moment for humanity as it's almost like the Lord disinherits humanity. But then we get to Genesis 12 and the calling of Abram. And we see that God is not done yet. He is not done. But you need to understand that the presence of sin in the world had never gone away. It had never gone away. Paul will say that, that uh, reflecting upon this Genesis story, he'll say that in their sinning, their foolish hearts were darkened. And in that way, they became like the beast that they worshipped. And so if you're God, and you are in this process, you are committed to this good creation that you made. And you are in the process of healing and restoring and saving this good creation. Remember, honestly, when, when, when I read the story of Scripture, I sometimes struggle to understand God's commitment to his creation. Right? Like, isn't because, in all honesty, if I created something, if I, if I, let's say I built this chair here, all right, and, and this chair decided that it was just going to go around and start murdering people, and start hurting people and causing death and destruction everywhere it went. I'm going to be honest. My first port of call is probably to just destroy the chair. Right? Just do away with it. I'm going to make a brand new chair. I'm not even going to use any of the pieces from the old chair. I'm just going to destroy it outright. Now, God absolutely could have done that. But God is far more faithful than I am. 
and his plans and his purposes are far higher than my plans and purposes. God says he's not going to destroy humanity. What he's going to do is he is going to heal and he's going to restore and he's going to fix this problem. So when we get Genesis chapter 12, for instance, we see in this darkest moment of humanity's history where God disinherits, uh, disinherits humanity, he says he reserves for himself a portion amongst all the nations. And then he calls Abram. It's this little glimmer of light. This little glimmer, glimmer of light in the story where he says, I'm going to bless this nation. I'm going to bless the nations through you, Abraham. And the story begins from there. Of God working out his salvation purposes through that. And he begins to work with mankind to bring a revolution against the darkness of the world. And so he begins with Abraham and he makes a covenant promise to Abraham that he's going to bless all the nations through him and through his seed. So that when it came time for God to call his people out of Egypt, there was a need to preserve this fledgling nation from corruption and to prepare them for what was to come. And so we get the beginning of the law of Moses, who I think is the mediator that Paul is referencing here in verse 20. Now, it seems like in the story of Scripture that the giving of the law was something God was doing. Amen? It certainly seems like that. I understand. It feels like I'm setting you up for a trap when I say that, right? I feel, it's like I see, like, you're like, I know you want me to say yes, but it also feels like you're entrapping me with that answer. The answer is yes. The, like, it is yes. God, it is, it is God's Torah. It is his teaching. It is his law. God gives it, right? And, but, but then the question should arise then, especially in the, in the context of Galatians, well, okay then, if this is something that God has done and he has given. He's given the promise to Abraham. He gave the law to Moses. Is the law, therefore, working against God's promise? Right? Because it seems like, it seems like justification and righteousness came simply by faith in Abraham. But now, 430 years later, whatever, was it was a 430 year or 420? 430. Thank you. Thank you for the back. <laughs> 430 years later, it seems like God's like, well, okay, we need, to, we need to change this up a bit. What we need is a law, right? And Paul asks this, this rhetorical question in verse 21. He says, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Because it certainly seems that way, right? If, if he's just presented this whole argument to the Galatians that actually righteousness and justification has always come by faith, we're already asking the question, okay, well, then what's the point of the law? And if you're saying, well, that, that, that God gave this law, is he somehow working against his own promises? Is he somehow working contrary to what he has already said? And Paul gives a resounding no to that. He gives a resounding no. Paul was not against the law. Just like Jesus was not against the law but understood the law in its proper place. Understood the law in its proper place. And to, to help bring that out, Paul will say this, for if the law had been granted the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. He, he highlights once again the difficulty with the law is that it was never able to give life. 
It was never able to give life. It was never able to change hearts. It might be able to hem people in, but it would never be able to change hearts. And, and so, really, an analogy that comes to mind is the law was kind of like a spiritual tourniquet. Are you familiar with what a tourniquet is? Yeah? Yeah. For those of you who don't know, a tourniquet is, is basically, oh, <laughs> basically when you tie off a limb to stop it from bleeding out. Right? You might get a strap or a piece of rope or whatever it is, and you make it so tight on the limb that it actually stops the blood flow to the rest of the limb. Right? Now, if you're bleeding out, if you've suffered a catastrophic injury to your leg and you attach a tourniquet to your thigh, it may just save your life from bleeding out. But is it able to save the leg? Is it able to give life to that leg? No. Left untreated, that leg is still going to die. It is still going to rot and it's still going to fall off. The law, in one sense, is like a spiritual tourniquet for sin. You see, in the ancient world, see, here's the difficulty, right? We approach the law with modern eyes, modern sensibilities, and some 2,000 years of history of the Spirit of God working through the church, impacting the world, and changing the way that people think about things, right? So when we go back and we read the Old Testament law, we read some of these laws, and we're like, that is, that is barbaric, that is barbaric. For instance, like when you read an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's, that's, that, you got to understand, in that context, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that is legal, that is a legal revolution. That's a revolutionary concept within the ancient world. You know, okay, well, that just seems like normal justice to us. But in the ancient world, you didn't have that. In the ancient world, you had blood feuds, right? If I wrong your family... Well, now I'm angry. So in order to get things back, you know, I'm going to go harm your family. Well, you murdered my brother, so I'm going to go murder your brother and hurt your sister as well. well. Okay, well, now the offense is over here, right? And they were like, well, you just murdered my brother and you hurt my sister. I'm going to go murder two of your family. And back and forth in this escalating scale of violence and destruction... And this is what the ancient world was. It was full of violence. It was full of blood. It was full of destruction... Because that is what sin does. Sin will never content itself to stay at a certain level. Sin is always seeking to consume and to destroy more and more. And so when the law comes along and says things like, no, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And understand the context. This is for a judge. Right? They're assuming that this, is, that this particular case has been brought into a, a court of law and a judge is presiding over this case. And the law says, no, we are, we are not escalating this anymore. We are doing a simple exchange. If, if, if you injured an eye, you get to injure an eye. It's that, that's it. No more. It stops there. Now, that may seem like an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. But in the ancient world, that was revolutionary, that that's all that would happen. And in a sense, in that, in that sense, God is applying a spiritual tourniquet to humanity in the law, to the Jewish people, saying, no, you're going to live justly, you're going to live righteously, and we are going to stop this bloodletting. We're going to stop this destructive force. We're going to hem it in so that you don't end up killing yourself in the whole process. 
So the law might have helped to prevent Israel wandering back into Egypt, though the story of Scripture tells us that that didn't really work because their hearts were always far from the Lord. And what it is, it's, it's like a child. It's like a child who's being prevented. This is how the law acts. The, 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 the law acts as a restriction, um, similar to like when a child who is prevented from doing something wrong but still wants to do that very thing anyways. Any of you who have had children, you'll know what that's like. Right? They're willing to listen to you because you've laid down the law, but you can see in their eyes they're not happy about it. But the law itself wasn't a bad thing. The law itself wasn't a bad thing, which is part of the appeal. Right? Because you may be confused to thinking how much Paul has been railing against the law and works of the law, that you might be confused and think that Paul thinks the law is a bad thing, but the law was never a bad thing. It was never a bad thing to not murder. It was never wrong to honor your mother and father. It is never wrong to treat strangers and foreigners with respect and love while they're living amongst you, when they're living amongst you. That was never wrong. The law was not sinful in that regard. The problem is not with the law. The problem was always with us. The problem was never with the law. It was always with us. The law was good. The law was holy. The law was righteous, but it was never, it never had the ability to bring life and salvation, the very life and salvation that was promised to us. And so Paul will go on. He says, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? No, it, it doesn't work against God's promises. But the law, if it had been granted the ability to give life, then righteousness certainly would have been on the basis of the law. But verse 22, he says, but... The scripture, and when he says the scripture, he means the law, imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. So what does it mean that the scripture imprisoned us under sin's power? What does it mean that the scripture imprisoned us under sin's power? Because remember, the law is a good thing. Imprisoning us definitely seems like a bad thing, right? If, if you had to go to prison today, most of you probably would not be thinking, well, this is good. This is, this is a happy turn of events now that I'm locked up here behind this cage. No, prison is a bad thing, right? The problem, the problem is with us. And, the, and, and Paul highlights this. I'm going to turn, turn over to Romans uh, chapter 7 um, because Paul... Uh, I think gets more explicit here in Romans 7 for us. And he explains it like this. He's like, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Because he's dealing with a similar issue in Rome, right? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me covetousness of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. 
So Paul, Paul, here, Paul here is highlighting the problem. The problem was never with God's law. The problem was the sin that lives within us. The problem was the sin that dwells within us. An analogy that, that as I was preparing this that came to mind is, have you ever seen a video um, where somebody takes sodium, right, and they just pure sodium, and they put it in water, and it explodes, right? You, have you seen this? Well, it happens. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. It happens, right? So, so what happens is it's, it's a fun experiment because you have a glass of water, right, and then they take a little cube of sodium, and they just drop it in the glass of water, and bang, this large explosion happens. Now, is the problem, you go, oh man, I had no idea that sodium was so dangerous. And then you start to ask yourselves questions, like as in, but isn't salt made of sodium? Why doesn't salt explode in water, but pure sodium does? Well, that, that's the same thing. That's the same thing that happens to us with the law. You see, the law is fine in and of itself. It's only when it comes into contact with us and our sinfulness that it actually starts causing a problem. It begins to explode and catch on fire and all these sorts of things. And it's the same, it's the same thing with the law. We're, we're fine. We're fine. The law's fine until we come together and all of a sudden now I know what coveting is and now all I want to do is covet. Well, now I know what murdering is and now all I want to do is murder. And so you see, the problem was always with us and the effect that sin had in us, corrupting us and distorting us so that when the good law came, all it did was produce death in us. But when sodium, but coming back to our sodium analogy, but when sodium is bonded with chloride, it becomes fine. It becomes salt, like table salt. And it's this beautiful analogy that sodium by itself, when it comes into, into contact with our sin, when, when, sorry, I'm, I'm mixing up my analogies. When sodium by itself comes into contact with the water, it explodes and causes fire. The law by itself, when it comes in contact with our sin, explodes and causes fire in our lives, causes destruction and condemnation in our lives. But sodium chloride turns to salt, which we use to flavor everything in our lives. And you see, Christ, Jesus is, <laughs> this is such a corny analogy, Jesus is the chloride. <laughs> when he fulfills the law on our behalf and he sends his spirit to live within us, he turns all of those commands that previously were death to us and he's able to produce life in us through them. So the law isn't bad, but it becomes bad for us when we come into contact with it. But Jesus, when he fulfills the law, transforms how we relate to the law so that it no longer is able to destroy us in a fiery blaze. And so Paul uses these two analogies when he's talking about the law. He says, firstly, it imprisoned everything under sin's power. All right? Because sin came and made explicit what transgressions were, all of a sudden sin sprang to life in us and all of a sudden we were, we were imprisoned underneath that condemnation. But Paul also says that the law was a guardian for us. 
Now, the, the underlying Greek word here, the underlying Greek word here, um, it doesn't mean like a prison warden, right? They're just in charge of, of keeping the door shut and making sure you don't escape. But it's actually language of a schoolmaster or a tutor, one who is meant to train you, one who is meant to teach you. And the law was also meant to be preparation and meant to be instructive to prepare us for Christ. Now, most of you did not grow up in ancient Judaism, I would imagine. Um, most of you don't come from that culture, and so um, this, may not, <laughs> this may not have been your experience. You came to Jesus before you had heard anything about Torah, perhaps. But for them, but for them answering the question, why, why was this even necessary? God says, he, he, Paul says that this was actually a preparation. It was actually a guardian. It was there to, meant to teach them so that when Christ came along, they were prepared and they were ready for the promise, prepared for the salvation that God would bring. You see, sin, the, the, the law, it, Psalm 1 says, blessed is the one who meditates on the law of God day and night. When you meditate on the scriptures, when you meditate on the law, a few things become apparent to you. One is the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of his ways. And the second thing that becomes apparent is your complete inability to live consistently with his goodness. There's some, maybe sometimes you'll, you'll have a shining moment, you'll wake up on the right side of the bed, and, and you'll have a good day. Thank God for good days. But a lot of the time, if we're honest... We continually fall short of God's goodness. We continually fall short of his grace. And the law, the law was meant to be a schoolmaster, a teacher of our hearts. Not only of the goodness of God's ways, but also a preparation for our hearts that somehow we are not, we are missing the mark. We are not living up to this good and glorious standard. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that we have forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. I just want us to come to this last point here. The law isn't a bad thing, and neither is a rule of life. <clears throat> I am of the belief that Christians can and should meditate on the law of God. You should read the Old Testament. You should meditate on it. You should allow God to speak to you through it. But we don't live under those statutes and those ordinances. And by simply obeying them in an outward ritualistic fashion, we'll never be able to produce life in you. It is only the Spirit of God that can produce life in you. All of our life practices need to be viewed with an eye on Jesus and an understanding that we are living in a grace-filled relationship with him as the Spirit of Christ instructs our hearts. See, the challenge, the challenge, with, um, the challenge with what Paul is trying to unpack here is he's trying to keep us on a straight and narrow path of thinking when it, in regards to the law. 
right? He wants you to understand and know that the law is a good thing and that lawlessness is a bad thing, right? But he also wants you to know and understand that you live in a relationship with the Lord that is full of grace and forgiveness and that there's now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what can often happen is people will go, oh, well, thank God that I'm under grace. So I'm going to do away with the law. I'm going to do away with any instruction. I'm going to do away with any rules. I'm going to do away with any commands. I'm going to do away with all of that stuff because I am under grace. So I am free to live however I want to live. And it's all good. But the reality is that it's not all good to just live however you want. Now, the mistake we sometimes make as preachers is because we want you to live in a good way, we want you to live in good relationship with the Lord, we don't want your life going to hell figuratively or literally. We start giving you rules and guidelines and, and here's a good thing you should do and don't murder and don't steal and don't lie and all these sorts of things, right? But the reality is, the reality is, is outwardly observing those things can't save you and, but Paul wants you to know, Paul wants you to know that observing those things can still be good. Does, does this make sense? Yeah. That was a very definitive yes. I'm feeling far less confident up here about... <laughs> Rules without the Spirit of Christ just brings death. It just brings slavery. So we have Christian traditions, but they are just that. They are just traditions. We have a way that we do church here in the modern West. And the Lord is free to change that, and that's perfectly okay. We can change the drum kit over to the other side. In some churches, that I would get a, a flood of emails. What are we doing? What are we doing? Changing the drum kit. What are we even doing with a drum kit? Some might even ask. <laughs> and so we have Christian traditions. We have a Christian way of life. And we hope that our traditions actually help serve us in following Jesus. That's what traditions are there for, right? They're there to help us serve and to follow Jesus. Likewise, as Christians, we are not looking to observe Torah and become culturally Jewish in order to be right with God. So I'm trying to, trying to land this plane in, in a healthy place, <laughs> in a healthy place, because... I want you to be benefited by the Torah. I want you to be benefited by the Old Testament. But I don't want you to become entangled and enslaved thinking that if you are not being culturally Jewish, that you are somehow not living up to God's standard, that he is somehow displeased with you. Because there are some in the church, and I, you know, we're all a mixture of, of great theology and bad theology, right? But there are some in the church who... who who would very much point to the Old Testament as being peak religiosity, as being peak faithfulness, 
And that thankfully, even though we weren't able to make it there, Jesus came along and, and he's able to provide forgiveness when we, when we fail and we fall short. But really, God does want us to observe the Sabbath in, in, in the same, in, in a religious sense. God does want us to observe the festivals and the feasts and he wants us to, you know, this, that, and the other thing. There, there's a strain of Christianity that is, that is trying to head back to uh, Torah observance as a way of being faithful to God. And look, here's the thing. If the Holy Spirit says to you, hey, I actually want you to observe a day each week where you just set it aside for me. In fact, I would say as a pastor, that's a good thing for you to take a day each week and just set it aside for the Lord. You will be greatly benefited by that practice. But if you're not someone who observes Sabbath, guess what? You can still be justified before the Lord because your justification before the Lord was never based on your Sabbath observance. Does that distinction make sense? Right? Jesus is not just a patch for some faulty code that is the Old Testament. Right? Like, in, like the, law was really, the law was really good and it was able to give life. Unfortunately, we were unable to live up to it. All right? But thankfully, Jesus came along and he's patched it now so that, 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 that now the law works. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. And Paul wants the Galatians to know and understand that. Because he finishes off here, he says, but since the faith has come, it was a temporary measure. It was a temporary measure to hem the people of God in. It was a temporary measure. And yes, unfortunately, it imprisoned them under sin and condemnation. But it was a temporary measure to keep them until such a time as the seed of Abraham would come. But now that faith has come. Jesus the Christ has come. And we are no longer under that guardian. You are, no un, you are no longer under the law. And that by faith, you are all sons of God in Jesus Christ. So I'd love for you to stand. I'd love to invite the worship team back. <clears throat> the reason why... And I'll say this over and over again so, so this doesn't just get lost in the weeds. The reason why we're going through the book of Galatians is I want you to have genuine discernment. Genuine discernment about what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. Genuine discernment about what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. Because even though this was a letter written some 2,000 years ago, we face variations on the same problem today. There are, there are people in the Christian faith, and, and look, I'm, I'm going to say good brothers and sisters, right? I don't doubt their genuineness at all, right? But there are some who, in their zeal for the Lord, are inadvertently placing heavy burdens on others. Inadvertently placing heavy burdens on others that they were never meant to carry. And so I just want you to know that, that, that if you... By faith alone, faithfulness to Jesus alone. He is my Lord. He gets to tell me what is, what is right and wrong. He gets to tell me what I do with my life. He gets to tell me whether or not I observe Sabbath or not. He gets to tell me. If he tells me I'm forgiven, then I'm forgiven. If he tells me that I'm saved, then I'm saved, right? By faith alone, you become a son or a daughter of God through no, no, other, no other thing, right? You are not an unfaithful Christian because you don't vote for the Liberal Party. You are not an unfaithful Christian if you don't vote for the Labor Party. Ah, I see. 
I went both ways, so you don't know where I stand. Ah. follow the Anabaptist tradition and abstain from voting. Now I'm confusing all of you. <laughs> right? But you're not an unfaithful Christian because you're not part of the Hebrew Roots movement. You're not an unfaithful Christian because you're not part of the progressive church movement. You're not an, you're not an unfaithful Christian because maybe you don't identify with super conservative Christianity. That it is by faith alone with all of your imperfections and all of your misunderstandings and all these sorts of things, Jesus accepts you and he welcomes you into his family by faith alone. And I want you to know that. Let no one place any heavy burdens on your back. Let no one enslave you to their way of living that the Lord hasn't given you. So Holy Spirit, I pray you would bring clarity. I pray you would bring freedom. pray you be breaking chains of guilt and shame that have been shackled on people completely unnecessarily. I pray you be liberating people from sin and death in Jesus' name. 